Welcome to the Sydney Ideas podcast series. Sydney Ideas is the University of Sydney's public events program, providing you with the opportunity to hear leading thinkers from our university and around the world. Enjoy the podcast. Uh, good evening. My name is Professor Ian Hickey. I'm the co-director of the Brain and Mind Centre here at the University of Sydney. And it's my great pleasure to introduce this Sydney Ideas event. I'd like to start by recognising the traditional owners of these lands, the Gadigal people of the Aura Nation, and to recognise the learning and teaching and discovery that's taken place in the place that we're now gathered tonight for tens of thousands of years. This is particularly uh, important to us, and for those who actually understand a number of aspects of Aboriginal culture, they'll be aware that one that is fundamental is not a linear relationship with time. In fact, in my fields of psychiatric epidemiology and social sciences, many, many people in my world have gone into Aboriginal communities and asked them the sequence of events in a simple linear way and assumed that they would share, in fact, our rather simplistic notion of the passage of time and how we organise events. I was reminded of this of, uh, just yesterday when discussing with Mirren at some length as to how her work is challenging the ways in which we imagine the way we organise that information ourselves. So I'm particularly looking forward to it. If it turns out to be a complete revisit, to what Aboriginal people have told us for the last 10,000 years, that may be a very good thing. It's also my great pleasure to have here this evening Professor Glenn Withers, who is the president of an academy that I'm personally a member of and my favourite academy, the Academy of Social Sciences in Australia. So I'd like to introduce Glenn to introduce this particular Paul Burke lecture. Glenn. Thanks so much, uh, Ian. It's a pleasure to be here this evening and uh, to, uh, to be on the occasion of the Paul Burke Lecture. Uh, Paul Burke is an earlier president of the Academy and was a, and we're going to be running a symposium on health and equity uh, where we both converge to uh, deal with those issues. And as we indicated earlier, uh, one of our three sessions, the, the penultimate session and the longest session, is on Aboriginal health. Uh, so that those themes are nicely coming together uh, that we're, we're tackling tonight and we'll be tackling at our annual meetings, which are the 19th to the 20th of October in Adelaide. Uh, so we'll um, move away from the easy comfort of the Academy of Science Dome in Canberra and uh, move to the Adelaide Oval for our meetings in, uh, in October. So those of you who are attending, and I'd encourage you to attend uh, from either of the academies or beyond, uh, do make sure you've got into your diaries the 19th and 20th of October and Adelaide, the destination. So thank you for uh, listening to me about the Academy of Social Sciences and I'll hand back to Ian to continue the introductions. Thank you very much, Gwen. Now, for those of us who live in the post-truth age, you'll be familiar that the President of the United States now runs the world from his Twitter account and we'd like you to join in. So this evening we have a series of Twitter handles which we'd like to join in to actually share what is going on here with the wider audience. I think one of the good things about modern social media is for those who are not here to be party to the discussion and there will be podcasts available afterwards. We want as many people to know as possible. Picking up Paul's theme, the Brain and Mind Centre is one of the multidisciplinary initiatives here at the University of Sydney. It is at the interface between our disciplines that many of the great discoveries and great impacts of the future will arise. And that is not an easy business to be in. It's made a whole lot easier when you recruit really good people to that. So it's a great pleasure for us 
to have actually recruited Mirren to this particular task in association with Glenda Halliday and John Hodges and Olivia Piquet, who's in the audience, which is a collaboration between medicine and psychology and basic science to look at issues related to the degenerative disorders that affect brain function, but also to learn from that more about brain function and how it plays out across the particular world. So we are deeply committed through the Brain and Mind Centre to that way of taking these complex issues forward, to discoveries in science, but also impact right through to social policy. It is always a pleasure to introduce someone half your age and twice as smart. And when I was reading Miriam, what she's really been awarded for in recent times, and I was discussing with her yesterday, I am intrigued, in fact, at the work that she's actually in. But for those who haven't read the whole thing, Associate Professor Miriam Iris is an ARC Future Fellow at the School of Psychology at the University of Sydney and here at the Brain and Mind Centre, an Associate Investigator with the ARC Centre of Excellence in Cognition and its Disorders. As you'll quickly find out, if you try and turn the spelling of her name into otherwise spoken English, you'll realise that she is Irish from uh, originally. Uh, came to Australia, uh, returned, uh, really came to Australia in 2010 and has been on ARC Discovery Early Career Research Award from 2013 onward. You know, her long-standing interest is in the brain networks that support uniquely human functions, such as remembering the past and imagining the future. As part of the larger group that is now located at the University of Sydney at its Brain and Mind Research Centre, her research program aims to understand how these processes break down in dementia in order to improve quality of life for individuals living with dementia and their families. The quality of her work has been nationally and internationally recognised. And just in recent times, that's included the New South Wales Young Tall Poppy Science Award, the L'Oreal UNESCO for Women in Science Fellowship. That was really good to see out there in the wider international world and the 2016 Premier's Prize for Early Career Researcher of the Year. So this year, Miriam was one of 15 outstanding international researchers honoured at the L'Oreal UNESCO International Rising Talents Awards in Paris. And only last week, she was presented with the Royal Society of New South Wales Edgeworth David Medal for her work. I think when you come to hear what she is talking about, you can see why all those societies and groups have taken such an interest. And I hope Miriam gets a chance this evening, we don't use up all the time, to actually say where she's been, but also where she is going and the wider implications of this research. When Miriam finishes her presentation, we'll then have a wider Q&A discussion for you to join in with. And throughout, just keep Twittering. Thanks, Miriam. Thank you so much, uh, Professor Hickey, for this very kind introduction, and thank you to Professor Withers and the members of the Academy for bestowing on me this truly great award. I'm truly honoured to have received the Paul Burke Award, and um, I'm very grateful to Professor Anne Castles from Macquarie University and to Professor Jason Mattingly from the University of Queensland, who nominated me for the award. Um, I have to admit, I looked back over some of the talks of the previous Paul Burke Award recipients, and they're a stellar cast, so I feel a little bit intimidated to follow in their footsteps, but I hope I can live up to expectations tonight. So what I want to do tonight is to convey to you why I find the brain so fascinating, and why I'm kept awake at night wondering how it is that we remember events from the past how we mentally project ourselves forwards in time to imagine events that have not yet happened. My son asked me the other day when I showed him a picture of the brain, where are the memories? And I can't actually answer that. So we still don't fully understand how the brain gives rise to these amazing feats of cognition. But hopefully I can give you a sample of what we've learned so far through some of our research endeavors. So my first point is that the brain is actually a time machine. 
And I know this is not a way that we usually conceive of the human brain. But in fact, when you think about its many varied functions, it enables us to travel seamlessly to the past, from the present, and also to the future. And so while I'm standing here in an auditorium full of expectant faces, which is quite anxiety-provoking, I have to admit, I can take myself away from the situation and I can mentally travel back in time to a comforting and warm memory from my past. And so I'll share with you how evocative those experiences can actually be. So I'm actually now thinking about a memory from my childhood. I'm back in my grandmother's house on St. John's Road in Wexford in Ireland. It's Friday, and on Fridays that means baking. So I go into my grandmother's kitchen. It's dimly lit. There's the lace curtains on the windows. She's got the orange tablecloth with white flowers spread out on the table. The teacups and saucers are arranged beautifully. They're white with little chefs and red and white triangles on the edges. And Nan is bustling around in the kitchen in her blue cardigan and her check skirt and her slippers, and she's pulling out apple and rhubarb tarts from the oven. She's got a pot of tea on the stove, and she's brewing the tea to that tar-like consistency that only the Irish appreciate. And there's this smell of pastry and sweet scent of apples. And she asks me, have I got much ecker to do, which was her word for homework exercise. And I sit at the table, and she starts cutting me a slice of apple tart. And so I can vividly feel myself back there. I feel the warmth, the comfort and that sense of belonging and sense of bonding with my grandmother. But at the same time, this memory is tinged with sadness because ultimately I know that my grandmother would go on to get Alzheimer's disease. And so she would succumb to losing her own memories that we both cherished so much. And so in my retelling of this event to you tonight, it's actually influenced by the events that were yet to unfold in the future. Such is the nature of memory. So this example conveys the many varied ways in which memory changes for all of us and memory means different things to all of us and serves a variety of different functions to us on a daily basis. So we know that memory has an important social connection. So I told you that memory and it hopefully has enabled me to form some kind of a bond with you. We can share our stories and we can actually connect on a social level. Memories are also crucial for who we are as individuals. So they convey a sense of continuity, a sense of self and of identity as we move through life. We essentially are the product of our memories. Our memories are also essential for future-oriented goals, such as planning and carrying out actions in an adaptive way. So we draw upon the past to inform where we're going in the future. Our memories are precious. I have memories that I would never want to lose, such as the time that I first held my son in my arms. These memories are so pr they're precious more than any physical thing could ever be to us. And at the same time, memory is fallible. So we all make errors in our memories from time to time. Sometimes information can become interspersed within accounts that we think is accurate, but yet may not always be veridical. And our memories are vulnerable. I think one of the worst things that we could imagine is for us to lose our memories. And indeed, that's something that's faced by hundreds of thousands of Australians who are succumbing or dealing with living with dementia. 
And so the neuroscience of memory is inherently complex, but I thought I would just distill it to you all in an easy to understand slide. And so this is courtesy of my three-year-old Fionn. So this is his take on memory. Your brain lives inside your head. It makes memories, and you can use a telescope to look at it. He's actually not far off the mark. So basically, we still, we're only scratching the surface of what we know about human memory. And it's incredibly complex. The more we learn about it, the more we understand that we need to learn. So I'm going to try and convey some of the complexity to you tonight and what we've learned by studying memory in the dementias. So there are many different types of memory, and we tend to refer to memory as a uniform sort of catch-all term. But really, we can divide memory into distinct entities. So there's episodic memory. This is event-based memory. These are the episodes that have occurred in your past. So this can range from something as simple as a shopping list to something much more sophisticated and nuanced, like remembering your wedding day or your first day at school. There's semantic memory. This is your repository of general world knowledge. So we know that there are 12 months within the year. We also know that kangaroos are marsupials. This is knowledge that's independent from a specific time and place. We also have spatial memory, which enables us to navigate through the world, to orient ourselves. And we have procedural memory. So this is a form of non-conscious memory, such as riding a bike or typing. We don't think of it consciously, but it's there and it's supported by different neural systems. And the type that we're going to focus on tonight are episodic memory and semantic memory. And these are called declarative memory. And so, as I've mentioned, episodic memory essentially refers to the episodes from your past. So this is the memory system that enables you to encode, store, and retrieve recently experienced events and information. And so it may be as simple as, you know, I must remember to pick this up from the shops, to remembering the contents of a recent phone call that you had, to thinking back to your first day at school or your graduation day, or to noticing a lapse in memory or being worried about somebody else's memory and realizing how fallible this type of memory actually is. And so to give you an indication of the complexity of episodic memory, for many years, we thought that episodic memory relied exclusively upon the integrity of this seahorse-shaped structure called the hippocampus, which is located deep in the temporal lobes of your brain, which sits right above your ears. But advances in your imaging now reveal that, in fact, when we retrieve episodic information, in fact, the hippocampus is not sitting in there working away on its own. It's communicating with regions in the front of the brain called the prefrontal cortex and also regions that are more posterior in the brain, such as the posterior cingulate cortex. Let me just show you here. So we're talking about a distributed network of regions within the brain, all of which must be functional to support episodic memory. And by that view, if there's damage to any one of these regions, we will see alterations in the capacity to remember the past. And so this is one of the primary motivations for me studying memory processes in the dementias because we know that memory complaints are often some of the earliest presenting symptoms of the dementias, and also the memory networks that are underlying memory systems are particularly vulnerable across certain dementia types. So there's a rationale on the clinical level and also on the theoretical level to study memory loss in dementia. 
And so one of the most common examples that we can think of would be that of Alzheimer's disease. And so we know that in Alzheimer's disease, recent episodic memory is particularly vulnerable. So patients will come to the clinic saying that their memory is not what it used to be, that they can't remember recent events and experiences. They may start to feel disoriented to time and place. And also their family members and wider social groups will notice these changes as well. And these changes are attributable to characteristic profiles of atrophy or cell loss in regions including the medial temporal lobes. This is where we said the hippocampus resides as well as other regions, including the parietal and frontal cortices. So it's a widespread cell loss and shrinkage of the gray matter. And so here I thought I would illustrate by showing you a healthy older brain. So it's quite nice and fleshy. Here are the hippocampi sitting here in the middle. And here is an Alzheimer's brain. So you can see absolutely devastating atrophy in these memory structures in the context of wider atrophy of other regions as well. And so here's a quote from one of our patients. So when I asked him to retrieve a recent event as part of an autobiographical interview, he said, I don't know what I did. I don't think I did anything exciting. You don't tend to do anything exciting at my age. So there's an awareness of the disruption to his memory, but also he qualifies it by saying that you don't, there wouldn't have been anything exciting to tell anyway. And then on the other side of the coin, we have semantic memory. So this, as I said earlier, refers to our general conceptual knowledge of the world. So we're carrying around this large repository of knowledge that's laid down in interconnected networks. And much of this we can recall without remembering the exact time or place where we acquired this knowledge. Most of it will have been harnessed from school and from lessons, but also it's independent of a particular spatio-temporal location. So it's knowledge that we can bring to mind, but we can't remember the exact source of how we acquired it. And for many years within the scientific literature, it was thought that episodic memory and semantic memory were distinct and non-overlapping or mutually exclusive memory systems. But in fact, now we know that when you remember episodic events from your past, Interleaved within these narratives will be semantic constructs and concepts. And so this idea that they may be mutually exclusive systems is starting to lose sway within the literature. And now we're moving towards a greater understanding of the interdependency between episodic and semantic memory. And we are very privileged to work with a rare younger onset neurodegenerative disorder called semantic dementia, which, as the name would suggest, is characterized by the loss of semantic memory. And this syndrome is absolutely fascinating. So these individuals will present with the loss of word knowledge, conceptual knowledge, object recognition is impaired. And yet all of this occurs in the context of fluent speech, preserved phonology and syntax, preserved spatial memory, and even intact episodic memory. So it's a very focal loss, a circumscribed loss of semantic processes. And this is attributable to circumscribed atrophy within the anterior temporal lobes. So here you can see it's actually quite striking, the amount of cell shrinkage and loss that we see here in the gray matter, including the hippocampus. And typically this loss or this atrophy occurs on one side of the brain much more so than the other. 
More often, it's the left hemisphere that gets affected, and then with disease advancement, the atrophy begins to encroach into the right hemisphere. And so just to give you an example of how an episodic event might be recounted by a semantic dementia patient, when I asked one of my patients to recall a recent event, he said, we had basic stuff, which is a special bread with a special bit of sauce, but it was sweet. So here he was describing a time when he went out for pancakes. So you can see he can't remember the word for pancakes, but he can remember the event. It's just that his vocabulary for the specific details is lost. But it gives you an interesting idea of how we can contrast two patient groups, one of whom is characterized by loss of episodic events, and the other of whom can remember the events but lacks the semantic details to populate the events. So we can compare the two and answer some really interesting questions. And so one of the areas that I find most fascinating is this area of autobiographical memory. And as the name would suggest, this is our life history. This is our autobiography. These are the memories that we carry around with us that define who we are as individuals. They convey a sense of self, a sense of identity, and continuity across time. So these range from the first day at school, your first date, your first kiss, getting married, having babies, moving house, all of these evocative events that you can re-experience in rich visual detail with a lot of emotional connotations as well. So these are very sensory, perceptually rich memories. And so how we study this is we use a technique called the autobiographical interview that was developed by researchers in Toronto. And basically, this interview aims to fragment or to parse the details within a person's autobiographical narrative into episodic and semantic details. And I'll just give you an example. So if somebody was describing their wedding day, they would typically tell me who was there, the main actors and players on the day, the supporting cast, the location, who else, the key people that were there. But they may give you some extra contextual information, such as telling you that they were engaged in Paris and then went on their honeymoon to the Caribbean. And so in the autobiographical interview, we focus on the crux of the main event, so the wedding day. And so these are labeled as internal details, and these are typically held to convey a sense of episodic re-experiencing. The extra contextual details that are given are called external details, and they're not carried as much weight within the interview. They're typically discarded to one side and are held as being an example of semantic memory. And we look across different time periods because this allows us to contrast how recent memories differ to perhaps more distant or what we call remote memories from the past. So we aggregate across some of the older time periods to create a remote composite score. And so in one of the studies that we've looked at, we found that actually not all of these autobiographical memories are created equal. And there are subtle differences across time periods in terms of how much detail different patients can remember. So when we look at the older memories, so these are the remote memories, the ones that are furthest back in time from the teenage, early adulthood, and middle adulthood time periods, we see that all of our patient groups, so the semantic dementia and the Alzheimer patient groups, are showing severe impairments. But when we look at the recent period, so these are memories that are less than one year old, actually our semantic dementia group were scoring reasonably well, and they were actually scoring in line with healthy older controlled participants. Within the SD group, the semantic dementia group were showing 
significantly better recent memory versus remote memory. So their recent memories were better preserved than their older memories. But in the Alzheimer's group, we found the opposite pattern. Their older memories were actually better preserved than their recent memories. This is what we call a double dissociation. And then we looked at neuroimaging. So we wanted to see which regions of the brain potentially could account for these differences in memory profiles. And so we used a technique called voxel-based morphometry. And this, is, this allows us to use structural scans of the brain, so structural MRI scans, and to map the gray matter integrity to the performance on a particular task. And so what we found was, in the Alzheimer's group, the hippocampus, so that memory structure that's deep in the medial temporal lobes of the brain, was always implicated, no matter what time period we were sampling from. So for remote memories and for recent memories, the hippocampus and some regions in the frontal pole were always implicated in the Alzheimer group. We also found that this region here, which is called the posterior cingulate cortex, and this is located much further back, again, very deep in the medial part of the brain, was implicated only for the recent time period, which suggests that there may be something unique about this structure that's modulating episodic memory for recent events. And in the semantic dementia group, what was very interesting was that we found that their lateral temporal cortices in the left hemisphere, so regions that are classically implicated in semantic processing, correlated with their remote memory loss. Nothing emerged in the recent period, and this would attest to the fact that they were scoring actually in line with controls for their recent memory. So, we also wanted to look to see, well, what happens to these memories over time? We know that as, as we get older, as our memories get older, things start to fade. They start to lose their evocative nature. They become perhaps less emotionally salient, maybe less visually, perceptually rich, but we didn't know what happened in dementia. So as a dementia gradually progresses, what does this do to the characteristics of the memories? And so we conducted a longitudinal study where we actually invited the participants back one year later and resampled their autobiographical memories, again from the recent period and from more remote periods. And what was very interesting was in a frontotemporal dementia group comprising mainly semantic dementia cases, we found that they did eventually start to show deficits in their recent memories. So at this one-year follow-up, recent memories started to erode. And this was attributable to atrophy that now was progressing into the posterior cingulate cortex, which was the very region that was implicated originally in the Alzheimer's group. And we know that this region tends to activate when healthy individuals are retrieving recent events. So there may be something about this region that's sensitive to the recency of experienced events. And in Alzheimer's disease, what was even more striking was the fact that even at one year later, the patients didn't show any significant decline in their memory scores. And this was counter to our original hypotheses because we just assumed that if you follow a patient who has a progressive neurodegenerative disorder, that they would gradually show decline across any measure that you administer. But what we did find was that when we conducted our longitudinal neuroimaging, changes in their cortical thickness over time actually reflected the fact that there was much more lateral temporal cortical involvement as their memories 
were progressing over time. And so what we suggest is that the involvement of these semantic processing regions of the brain may reflect a change in the representation of their memories over time. So memories that start off as possibly episodic gradually lose that flavor and become more fact-like or overgeneral or what we say semanticized. And that would require the extra involvement of lateral temporal regions that are known to be crucial for semantic processing. So we can take home some conclusions from the past, namely that autobiographical memory is extremely complex. It's one of our most sophisticated cognitive endeavors, but it's supported by an equally sophisticated neural network. It doesn't rely solely on one individual region in isolation, more so it's a core network, all of which needs to be functional to support our capacity to remember the past. We do see that some regions seem to be implicated irrespective of the time that you're reminiscing from. So the hippocampus, which we know is one of the classic memory structures, seems to be implicated in Alzheimer's disease irrespective of whether the memory is recent or much more distant in the past. And the same with some regions within the frontal poles. But we also see that there may be some time-specific regions. So the posterior cingulate cortex seems to only emerge in our analysis for recent events. And this ties in really nicely with findings from the neuroimaging literature in healthy individuals, suggesting that this region is sensitive to the more to younger memories that are more recently experienced. And in contrast, we see that lateral temporal cortical regions here predominantly on the left-hand side of the brain, which are implicated in semantic processing, may be more involved in older memories. So as our memories age, they become less evocative, they become less episodic, and the more we retrieve them, the more they start to lose that sort of episodic flavor and become more like facts. And so they'd be more likely to require the involvement of lateral temporal regions, which support our retrieval of facts and semantic information. So now that we've dealt with memory for the past, we need to start thinking about why we would have evolved to have a memory system that lets us remember these events in such exquisite and evocative detail. There has been a huge transformation within the scientific literature in the field of memory, which originated around 2007 with the discovery that the regions that are implicated when we remember the past are actually almost carbon copies of those regions that we need to envisage the future. And so this was marked as one of the breakthroughs of the year within cognitive neuroscience, that actually maybe memory is specifically involved to enable us to imagine the future. And it may not be a retrospective function at all, but rather it's the optimal system to enable us to be a future-oriented species. So if we think about evolution and why we would need to be future-oriented, it seems that humans are one of the few species that actually can envisage the future. So animals can do it on a very rudimentary level, but humans can have foresight. and We can think far, far ahead into the future. And it's been suggested that perhaps this is how agriculture came to be, that you could plant a seed and then return a year later, knowing that that would bear crops. And so we need to start thinking about memory now as less of this retrospective system, but much more of a future-oriented system. And so if we want to travel into the future, 
most of us will start thinking that we need a TARDIS or some kind of sophisticated machinery to enable us to do so. But it turns out that you actually possess all of that neural machinery inside your brain. And so, as I've said, some of the breakthroughs within this field have come from researchers like Donna Rose Addis and Eleanor McGuire, who've shown that the very same neural machinery that we draw on to enable us to remember the past allows us to envisage the future. And so we're recruiting the exact same neural regions, whether we dip back in time or project ourselves forward. It's quite striking to see the same patterns of activation across past and future conditions. And so these findings have given rise to some new theories within the field of cognitive neuroscience, one of which is the constructive episodic simulation hypothesis. And so this contends that when we try to envisage the future, what we need to do is to dip back into our memory stores from the past to flexibly extract out the relevant episodic details, and then we can recombine them in a new and novel way. And so this allows us then to simulate events that have not yet happened and also to try out, so mentally try out different hypo hypothetical scenarios without having to engage in costly behavior. So we can simulate what might happen if we want to walk down a dark alley at night, but you don't have to engage in the costly side effects. And by that view, damage to the episodic memory system is held then to adversely affect the capacity to envisage the future. And indeed, this is seen across multiple clinical populations, such as depression, mild cognitive impairment, and Alzheimer's disease. So damage to the episodic memory system actually disrupts the capacity to engage in future thinking. And so we've started investigating future thinking within our patient populations. And we've used a modified task developed by Donna Rose Addis whereby we sample memories from within the previous year. So we ask participants to try and recall past events in response to cues. And we also ask them to envisage or try to preempt and imagine a possible future event that could happen within the next 12 months. And so we counterbalance our conditions to make sure that past isn't contaminating future performance and to parse out order effects. And what we found was actually quite striking. So Here's past performance in our semantic dementia group and our Alzheimer's group. And we replicated our finding that semantic dementia patients do show relatively preserved recent memory. And our Alzheimer patients show impaired retrieval of recent events. But even though our semantic dementia group have their episodic memory stored to hand, they can draw upon details that they could use in the service of future thinking seems that this is not sufficient. So in fact, here we're seeing that our semantic dementia patients are as impaired as Alzheimer's disease patients when trying to envisage the future. So clearly, episodic memory is not enough to enable them to engage in this complex process, and something else must be accounting for their poor performance on the task. And so we again looked at the neuroimaging and used voxel-based morphometry to correlate their task performance and gray matter integrity. And we found that the posterior cingulate emerged nicely in the Alzheimer's group, and it was the lateral temporal cortices in the semantic dementia group, suggesting that it's semantic processing, or the damage to the semantic memory system, underpins their inability to envisage the future. And so here's an example from one of our patients. So 
I asked him to try and imagine an upcoming event. I think the cue was something to do with an oven or for dinner. So he thought he would tell me about a time where he will go out for dinner with one of his friends. So he said, on Thursday night, I'm having a meal with a couple of my friends. But then he takes me off on a complete sort of tangential reminiscence about the last time that he went for a meal. So this is episodic memory, but it's just not situated in the correct context for him to simulate the future event. So he takes me down the past, describes the past event, and then comes back to the future and says, but this time we'll go to the Middle East. So there's something missing there in how he's structuring the event. And he's giving me a lot of episodic detail, but it's just not related to the event in question. And so we've started to think about how we could account for these findings. And we're proposing that the loss or the disruption to the semantic memory system in the context of intact episodic memory, as we see in semantic dementia, actually precludes the ability to envisage the future. So if you don't have the semantic memory store to scaffold or to structure your future scenarios, the simulation will fail. And indeed, all you'll be left with are your episodic events from the past. And that's what we see in semantic dementia. They default to the old events from the past, and they're not able to give us something novel and new. We've also started thinking about this idea of construction. And this draws largely on the work by Eleanor McGuire at UCL in London. And this is the idea that when you start thinking about the past and the future, what you need to do is to construct in your mind's eye a scene. And that scenes truly are the currency of past and future thinking. And so one question that we wondered about was, well, can our patients actually construct scenes in their mind's eye? Is this basic process something that's fundamentally missing or damaged in these patient groups? And so using the scene construction task that was developed by Eleanor McGuire's team, we've started probing the capacity to construct and to visualize mentally coherent scenes in the mind's eye. And so these can range from a sandy beach, a walk through a forest, the deck of a ship. They're all quite nice, commonplace scenes. And participants are simply asked to construct the scene in their mind's eye and to describe it in as much detail as they can. But we really didn't know, would our patients be able to do this? What would the quality of the scenes be like? Could they give us maybe some kind of fragmented, black and white, rudimentary description? Or maybe is this process still intact? And so we've started to explore this idea of scene construction in Alzheimer's disease. And what we find, I think unsurprisingly, is that our patients with Alzheimer's disease are not able to construct spatially coherent scenes. Even when the scenes are as simple as beach, ship, forest, castle. So scenes that they should have some everyday experience of, they find this extremely difficult. They show marked deficits relative to age match controls, across all of the different elements of the task. And interestingly, the spatial elements of the scene seem to be particularly affected in Alzheimer's disease. And we wonder if this links in with some of their spatial disorientation and their navigation difficulties in everyday life. They reported that their scenes actually were more likely to be black and white, that the image itself was quite fragmented. So it felt more like static images rather than one dynamic scene. And when we ran neuroimaging analysis, again, 
this posterior cingulate region emerged. So we're starting to find a common locus of some of these problems that Alzheimer patients are having. And it seems not to be hippocampally driven, as you might expect, but much more likely to do with atrophy or gray matter um, shrinkage in these posterior parietal regions. But we also wanted to explore what would scene construction look like in semantic dementia. And I think this is an even more interesting question. So as I said earlier, we know that semantic dementia patients can retain excellent spatial navigation and spatial memory, even when they lack the words and the phrases to describe where they're going. So we studied scene construction in a single case. So this was case GC. And we studied him particularly because he was at a very early stage of the semantic dementia disease trajectory. So he had great insight into his difficulties and also his semantic impairment wasn't so bad that it would preclude him doing some of these very verbal tasks. So he showed the classic semantic dementia profile on formal cognitive testing. And this is his MRI. So his atrophy was largely localized to the left hemisphere. So it hadn't yet started to encroach into the right. And so we administered the scene construction task. I was prepared for a, a lot of deficits to emerge on this task, but GC confounded me and he gave some beautiful descriptions of the various scenes. So he was describing being on the beach. He talked about the light filtering through the water, the colors that he would see under the surface of the water, the starfish, the fish. He went on and on. It was a really sort of exquisite moment that I won't forget for a long time because he totally, he flummoxed me. I thought he would be quite impaired. And he described that his ratings of the scenes were that it was quite vivid he felt like he was there, he felt like his description was detailed, and he had a feeling of presence in the scene and immersion and connection to the scene, and that it was spatially integrated. So across all of these different figures, GC is the little red square. He's sitting very comfortably in the midst of the control comparison group. He scored almost at the center of the group, at the median or the mean, for every single element of the scene construction task. So clearly, GC can produce scenes. But we also wanted to know, maybe it's a question of side. And so we know that GC's atrophy was localized to the left hemisphere. So here we're looking at the hippocampi again. So there's two hippocampi in the brain, a left and the right. And it's still unclear whether there are differences in terms of the left hippocampus's function versus the right. And we know that patient GC was showing exclusively left hippocampal damage. But we also had access to a patient who was presenting with the exact opposite profile. So patient DF was showing exclusively right hippocampal damage. And so we wanted to test whether, is it the side of the damage that's most important? So we have one patient who has damaged to one hippocampus and the opposite for patient DF. Would we find different profiles on the scene construction task? So as I said before, GC was scoring beautifully in line with controls. His scenes were rich, they were perceptually vivid, they were spatially integrated, and he could give a panoramic view of what he was envisaging. DF scored right at the bottom of the pack. It's quite amazing to find these differences, even in a single case design like this. And when we went back to the transcripts and looked at DF's actual descriptions on the task, 
we found that he was focusing on the microscopic details. So he wasn't giving us a scene. He was actually focusing in on the texture and the feeling of the sand, the grains of sand on the beach, the specific whale that was hanging in the museum. He wasn't actually describing scenes. It was more the very fine-grained, spatially perceptual, tiny, tiny details on the microscopic level. So he was focusing on object-based details in the absence of the provision of the scene. So now we have a clue that perhaps there are differential effects between the right and the left hippocampus, that in some conditions, spati the spatially integrated construction of a scene can be achieved in semantic dementia. But it seems that during this process, the semantic dementia patients invariably default back to memories that are familiar to them. So when GC was performing the task, he would draw upon a beach that he was familiar with, and he would draw from his episodic memory store. And so we were referring to this process as recasting, so the taking of the old memories from the past and moving them into the atemporal or future condition. And indeed, in our first study where we examined future thinking and semantic dementia, we found that 80% of the future events created by semantic dementia patients had been previously experienced, despite strict instructions that you must create something new and that you cannot have experienced this event before. So there's something about the novelty of the events that these patients are, are creating that seems to be disrupted specifically in the semantic dementia group. So we wanted to try and preclude or to stop and intervene and stop our semantic dementia patients from recasting. We were thinking about various ways. So how can we stop them from drawing upon their previous experiences when we do these future thinking tasks? And so in one of our more harebrained moments, we decided, let's send them to the moon. So we're going to devise a task where they cannot possibly have had previous experience. And also, we had to make sure that they hadn't watched any previous moon documentaries or moon landing shows so that their memories wouldn't be contaminated by an actual recent event. So they needed to imagine an event that they could not have experienced previously. And here we see the results. This is preliminary data that I'm showing to you. So this is a plausible event that could happen in the future, in the next 12 months. And this is performance on the moon condition. We actually see that the implausible condition in the semantic dementia patient group is disproportionately affected. So they seem to have the most trouble trying to engage in these implausible, not episodically driven future simulation. And I think, again, one of the most informative things that we can do is actually to look back at the descriptions of the patients. So the figures and the numbers are all well and good, but the way that the patients describe what they're doing, I think, is the most revealing of all. So here's an example of a healthy older control describing what it would be like to be on the moon. So he says, we'd get off the craft, it would be dusty, the landscape is not smooth, it's sort of bumpy and rocky. You won't have gravity, so you'd sort of bounce along and in an eerie sort of light, rather than broad sunlight, sort of a brownish color. Maybe there'd be a clear view of the sky and you'd look out into stars and space. So it's quite evocative. And in fact, some controls actually got quite emotional at imagining being on the moon and thinking of what a, an achievement this would be for them. And so here is an example from a semantic dementia patient. 
I'm not exactly sure what you'd be doing, but I don't think you would be doing a lot. Might just be looking back to Earth. Well, it would be very unusual. It would probably be something you'd be able to talk about when you get home, because we see it all the time, don't we? It's a long way away, though. So there's a real absence of actually any sensory perceptual content. They're talking in very broad terms about what that might be like, without really conveying the true crux of being on the moon. And I think the clincher for me was when the patient said this. I honestly don't know because I've never been there. So it was like QED. <laughs> so episodic memory seems to be crucial as well. So in the absence of semantic memory, in semantic dementia, these patients default back to the memories that they do know. And they use these memories then to try and plan, to anticipate and to simulate the future. So I think at this point, it's also important to think about what some of the clinical implications of these findings might be. So we've uncovered a whole area, a whole area of cognitive complaints that hadn't previously been thought about in relation to dementia. We commonly think about memory as being past oriented, but in fact, now we're showing that patients, irrespective of their diagnosis, have problems actually conceiving of and thinking about the future. And so I believe there are a lot of clinical and actually very practical implications of this work, some of which falls within the domain of perspective memory. And so this is your ability to remember to carry out or to do things at a future point in time. And this would have um, ramifications for remembering to take medication, remembering to turn off the iron or did you turn off the stove? There's also implications for actually thinking ahead to the outcome of decisions that you might make in the future. And this has clear relevance for financial planning, especially in the early stages of the disease, and even thinking about things such as advanced care directives and end-of-life care. And also I wonder more broadly whether the loss of the future impacts the individual in terms of mood and motivation, whether this leads to depression, to apathy, to reduced social engagement, these are questions that haven't actually been asked yet, and I think they're going to be really important when we think about the well-being of the individual who is living with dementia. A very revealing case study came out a few years ago, looking at, just in a single case of semantic dementia, how the loss of future thinking impacted the individual in a very real way. And so this was a single case study where the patient increasingly became depressed and began to show suicidal ideation and multiple suicide attempts. And when questioned about this, the patient actually said, I don't have a future. What is there to look forward to? So they were patently aware that they couldn't envisage themselves at a future time point. And it's been said that depression is the inability to construct a future. If the future is out of reach, I do wonder how this impacts the individual in terms of their overall well-being and sense of self. So to conclude, we've seen how there's many metaphors about construction, simulation, and this construction site metaphor I think works really well when we're thinking about how we construct, we build, we sort of play around with, and we mentally create future scenarios. So I believe that episodic memory would form the building blocks on this construction site. We need to be able to take the contextual details from our previously experienced events and to bring them into the future scenario and to populate an event. But I firmly believe that we need to have semantic memory. This is crucial to provide a structure or a framework or a schema within which we can populate our episodic details. 
I also think we need some kind of integrative mortar or cement to hold the simulation together. And so I believe that there's some element of associative binding that may be conferred by the canvas. But again, we need future work to actually explore this in more detail. And finally, I think that scenes are going to emerge as being the foundation of these constructive endeavours. Whenever we remember an event from the past or try to project ourselves forward to the future, inherently there's a scene at its core. And again, work is being done in London and various research groups around the world to try and tease apart these various different elements of these core constructive capacities. So finally, I've, this is the end point of my journey here on the past and future merry-go-round that we've been on this evening. I want to just emphasize that science is a collaborative endeavor, and so none of this work would have been possible without a, a huge team effort. Um, none more so than the contribution of our patients and their families, who generously give our time to our research. They, we have seen so many patients over the last 10 years in the Frontier Clinic, and each one of them, they tirelessly undergo cognitive testing and experimental testing and neuroimaging scans with very good grace and enthusiasm. And I think that we really have to, I give a heartfelt acknowledgement to their participation. I really do appreciate it. We wouldn't be able to do the work without their commitment. Um, it's a pleasure to be part of the Frontier Group at the Brain and Mind Centre here at the University of Sydney. And I want to acknowledge um, Professor Olivier Piguet, who's here in the audience tonight, and Professor John Hodges at the university, who's in Cambridge at the moment, um, for their staunch advocacy and mentorship of me over the years. And I wouldn't be standing here actually without their support. So it, it very much means a lot to me. Um, I've had a number of mentors over the years as well, and there's too many really to list here tonight, but there have been a few standouts who have constantly put me forward for things such as the Paul Burke Award and pushed me when it feels slightly uncomfortable to go outside of my comfort zone. And I think I'm now ready to pass on these opportunities and to start bringing the next generation forward. I'm going to pass the baton. Um, and so I want to acknowledge my funding bodies to so the Australian Research Council, Alzheimer's Australia and L'Oreal UNESCO for Women in Science programme. And also, on a more chirpy note, I want to acknowledge these spry individuals here. So these are the members of my research team, the MIND group, and they're sitting down here in the first two rows. This is such a talented, bright, enthusiastic, energetic, motivated group of PhD students and research assistants. I don't know how many of you can honestly say that when you get up in the morning, you look forward to going into work and seeing your colleagues, but that's how I feel about my group. And I really do hope that we see some of them in a similar position to this in a few years to come, and I'm certainly going to make it my business to get you there. So just say look out for these guys because they're, they're really smart. And I will conclude on that note, and I just want to thank you very much for your attention this evening. It's I hope you um, can see why I love memory research so much. Thanks for listening to the Sydney Ideas podcast series. For more information about our upcoming events or to listen to more podcasts, head to sydney.edu.au forward slash sydney underscore ideas.